If you may, I'd like to ask you to get back to that passage in the New Testament Colossians that we just read a moment, moments ago. And as you open back there, just, my family is not here with me. They are visiting in San Antonio. I'm here with my sister, Priva, uh, from uh, Uganda, uh, who's here to visit, and uh, she was here at camp. Colossians 1, 15, and uh, we'll be focusing our attention this morning on Colossians 1, 15 through 20. There's a couple of guys uh, who are graduates of Reformed, uh, no, Dallas Theological Seminary that have written a very, very important book for our age, I think. And I began reading this book almost two years ago when a friend of mine from Scotland uh, loaned this book to me. And uh, the names of these two individuals are Robert Bowman and Jay Komazewski. I hope I can pronounce that right. They've written a book, and the, the title of the book is uh, Putting Jesus in His Place. Putting Jesus in His Place. Very, very important book for the 21st century. Because I believe, brothers and sisters, that what is on attack here in the West is not just your civil liberties. Because there are many who think, oh, what is on attack is our civil liberties. It's not really. They might be, but really what is on attack in the 21st century is this idea of who Jesus is. That's what is on attack. It's not anything else but what is on attack, the deity of Christ. In this book, they write that uh, interpretations of Jesus... Interpretations of Jesus are fraught with bias. To many, is a powerful figure whom people want on their sides. And so they are willing to recreate him in their own image and also to enlist his support. For example, the animal rights activists imagine a vegetarian Jesus. New Ages make him as an example finding, finding the God within and the radical feminists strip him of his divinity so that Christianity doesn't appear sexist. Frankly, they conclude in this book that it's really hard to escape the feeling that our culture has taken Jesus' question, who do you say that I am, and changed it to who do you want me to be? Who is Jesus is the most important question. So this morning, briefly, we're going to be looking at the preeminence of this one Jesus. And this is really what I want to do. This is what I'm hoping that the Lord will, God in heaven will do for us, that he will take Jesus kind of like a diamond. If you've seen a diamond and you put it under light, it, it reflects on all corners. It shines on all corners. And I hope that all of us will be at the end of this worship service, will be able to see Jesus bright and beautiful, and we'll be able to see that all together our Christ is lovely. That we'll be able to leave this place with our heads high, held high because of who Christ is. And so Paul talks to the Colossians because just like in our age, what was on attack was this idea of who Christ is. And Christ is revealed in all of these texts. As a matter of fact, Christ is not only revealed in his texts, but brothers and sisters, Christ is revealed in all of Scripture. The old and the new reveals Jesus. Every text of the Bible points us to who Jesus is. 
However, in this very short passage, which actually many think was a hymn, Jesus even is more brighter. There's more light on who Christ is in this text. You know, friends, that our Paul reveals what our post-modern pluralistic cultures do not want to hear. You see, they do not deny the existence of Christ. They are smarter than that. They don't say Christ never existed or they say Christ did exist. But they all say that Christ is like the Gnostics that Paul was dealing with. They consider Jesus to be one of many. One of many thousands. They don't believe that John 14, 6, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. They believe that Jesus Christ is just one of those ladders. One of the ladders to get to heaven. As a matter of fact, I had one of the preachers, one of the eminent preachers of this nation saying, Oh, there are so many. There's only one way to God, but there are so many ways to Jesus. Whichever way you take, or Buddha, or whatever, you just you end up with Jesus. I heard that, and I said, oh my, and this has a great big congregation, and everybody was eating that up. You see, Paul teaches differently, and Scripture reveals different Jesus. He is not prominent. He's not one amongst many. The scripture teaches us that he is preeminent. He is not part of the buffet. What we've loved to be in America as a large family, we've loved to go to the buffets in the United States where you, you pick what you want. It's not that. It's not to pick what you want. No, it's not. It's preeminent, not preeminent. And so we're going to look at this passage and we're going to see what Paul says. I like what one person said about this. He says, here there is nothing that certain in this world that certain wants to do, endeavors to accomplish as to bring mist with a view of obscuring Christ. Because he knows that by his, this means the way he has opened up falsehood and he will destroy many who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to see who Jesus is. But first of all, we want to ask ourselves, what does the word even preeminent means? Well, preeminent means to be first. First in rank. First in influence. He's number one. As a friend of mine says, that he's in a class by himself. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. But you know what is a mystery that satisfies? <laughs> he's the only one. Many in this culture do not believe that he's the only one. They believe that he's the one of many ways. But as Dr. S.G. Moore, one of the Anglican bishops of the 1800, wrote, this creed of Christ's preeminence, if I may call it that, it is, that this passage is the highest possible importance for the Christian doctrine, it gives us some great fundamental data for the believing, for the believing theology of both person and the work of Jesus Christ. J.I. Parker said that the central theme of the Christian faith is this, that Christ is preeminent over life. And so Paul begins here really taking us five different directions to open up who Christ is and so that we can be able to see that our Christ is altogether lovely. The first thing he says in verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In other words, that he is the reflection or representation of who God is. The image of the invisible God. The word image there comes from the Greek icon, meaning an image or figure of likeness. 
Jesus is the image of God who is invisible. So Paul says he's not just a prophet. He wasn't just a good man, but Jesus was the image of the very God. In other words, no man has ever seen God, but Jesus declared himself in John 1.18 that he was from God. Jesus says, he who has seen me in John 14, 7 through 9, that he who has seen me has also seen the Father. So if we want to know who God is, you look at Jesus. There's no way I don't know who God is in heaven without looking at Jesus because Jesus is the image, image of the invisible God. He has made God visible. He has made God visible. He is the brightest of God's glory. The express image of his person, Hebrews 1.3. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Jesus is the image of God. He is the image of God. He's, from these passages, then we learn that Jesus accurately and fully expresses the being and the perfection of God. Nobody has ever been able to do that but Christ. Christ expresses, because he's the image of the invisible God, he expresses accurately and fully the being and the perfection of God. In other words, brothers and sisters, by looking at Jesus, he revealed God to us. He reveals God to us. None of us knows God without Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, if you go back to read, it's a long passage. But what it is over and over again in that passage, he says, I have come to reveal God to you. And he said what? I have accomplished it. The reason I came from heaven is to reveal you, God, to people. And I have accomplished it. The image but also this passage says he is the firstborn. This is a title of honor, a title of inheritance, relationship with the Father. Psalms 89 verse 1 says, I will appoint my firstborn the most exalted of all kings, of all kings of the earth. You want to know God? You look at Jesus. You want to know who God is? It's in Jesus that we know who God is. So he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And we'll deal with that phrase, the firstborn of all creation, because the firstborn of all creation doesn't mean that he was created. Because there are so many religions says that he was created. But I want you to look at verse 2. I mean, I want you to look at the next verse. It says that, for by him all things, and I want you to notice all, the all, the all repeated. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. It's not only a reflection of God, but now Paul is saying that Jesus is the creator of all creation. Not only just a reflection of God, the icon of God, but he's the creator of all creation. You see, some have therefore concluded that from this passage, that Jesus is the created being, the first of all God's creation. Nothing created that is bigger than Jesus. For example, those who know there's one religion in this nation that is really spreading all over Africa. They believe that. They think that he was born, that he was the first creation. That's not true. That's far from the truth. Firstborn here says means preeminent, highest in rank, 
but it's also used in scripture as a metaphor to describe one who occupies the rank and privilege of being the firstborn without literally meaning that he was created as the firstborn. Psalms 89 verse 27, Psalms 89 verse 27 says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Therefore, any interpretation of this term must be in harmony of what taught elsewhere in Scripture. I always tell my students that over and over again that the rule of a Scripture is Scripture interprets Scripture. And many who lose this and many who think otherwise, they have not let the Scripture interpret itself. And Jesus is clearly proclaimed to be the creator of all things. In John 1, it says he created all things. In verse 16, Jesus is the agent of creation. When God created everything, Jesus was there in creation. He is the creator of all the world, from the smallest atom to the largest star. He is the creator of all the world, whether visible or invisible. Every throne, every authority, every ruler, he created all of them. And he's stacking these things up. Paul is stacking these things up. And he repeats himself over and over again. Why? Because he wants to show us Jesus our Christ that is altogether lovely, the creator of all things. Our Christ is not only the creator of all things. That will be wonderful by itself that is the creator of all things. But Paul goes on further. He says that all things were created by him and for him. That everything that's been created, everything that we see was created for our Lord, our Jesus in other words, that everything that was made that we see that we don't see, God, in other words, as it was created, he gave it to Jesus. This is yours, Jesus. All of these things. One theologian, Paul Peter O'Brien, says, Paul's teaching about Christ as the God of creation finds no parallel in the Jewish wisdom literature or in the rest of the extant Jewish materials of the, for that matter. Everything that we see is because of him. Nothing in this world came in by itself. Nothing exists in by itself. Everything exists because of this one Jesus who is altogether lovely. In Romans 11.36, the benediction, I don't know how many times that I, I've stood before God's people and declared this benediction, but Paul says, to him and through him, and through to him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever amen paul then in light of verse 36 of of romans 11 says he calls us to a reasonable service to this christ if we take these claims seriously then we are totally to live for god we do not belong to ourselves we, like the rest of creation, belong to Christ. We are created by him and for him. Therefore, for us to look at anything else is futile. I was created for Christ. I was created by Christ. And I was created for Christ. Everything we see was created by Christ. And also was created for Christ. In verse 17 of the same part, he says that he doesn't only create these things and he only created for him, but he further says in verse 17 that he sustains all things. He is before all things and in all things hold together. Notice in the Greek, this is a perfect tense. Christ continues to hold all things together. Nothing is out of place. 
Don't be alarmed. <laughs> Don't be alarmed of 20, 20, uh, 2012, November 2012. Don't be alarmed. Our Christ is holding everything together. Nothing is not going to change, brothers and sisters. He's still on the throne. Our Christ holds all things together. In other words, there's nothing out of his control. There's nothing out of place. Everything is held together with, in him. In him. He has not lost control. You know, sometimes we think that he's up there in heaven and he has given up on this world and he's there saying, angels, would you bring me cappuccino? And angels, would you find me? I have lost control over the world. The world is going in a handbox. I have lost control. No, no, no. The scripture tells us that he sustains all things. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 1.3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. <laughs> One of my favorite passages was when the disciples were, after the feeding of the 5,000, uh, Jesus told the disciples, I, I want you to move over to the other side and I'll meet you there. <laughs> How he was going to make it, they didn't know, but they obeyed Jesus and they got into the boat. And, and as middle of the boat, the, the, the Bible says that the winds began to rage. And the disciples were just ecstatic. They were afraid. Then from a distance, they see Jesus walking on the water. They say, it's a ghost, it's a ghost, it's a ghost. And Jesus says, no, it's I. And you know what Jesus did? got in the boat and then you know what happened all of a sudden rage and all winds raged and the billows all of a sudden the disciples started losing it again don't you care master don't you care we perish you know what Jesus did he did what no Hebrew would do he did what no human being would do he stood up and looked at the waters and said peace be and the Bible says, within that time, everything was gone. And you know what was the response of the disciples? They all began to worship because they know that anybody who would do something like that is not just the creator of the winds and the waters, but he also is a sustainer and controller of everything. So my brothers and sisters, our Lord is forever, is altogether lovely. He is in control. Christ, it is in Christ that things, all things hold together. Jesus is the source of life. Why would you, why would anybody ever settle for anything less than Jesus? Why would you ever do that? Notice, everything, not some things, everything. It might be marriages, it might be children, it might be your job, it might be your next move, it might be everything. The Bible says he sustains and holds them together. It might be church, it might be nations, he does that, he's in control. But I want you to notice something else because it even gets better. I want you to look at verse 18a, it gets even better. And the Bible says that he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Paul moves on now and he says not only preeminent in creation, but our God is preeminent in the church. I don't know whether you saw the uh, Newsweek magazine. Newsweek magazine last, uh, I think it was yeah, this uh, Easter. They came up with a very colorful 
you know, you know, many years ago when I was here in the States, Newsweek magazine used to be a real big, thick thing. But I guess nobody ever reads Newsweek anymore because everybody has iPad, iPad, and iPods, and iWatch, whatever. Whatever you guys have. I mean, nobody reads it. So what they have decided, well, we can't get out of business altogether. But so what we're going to do is we're going to do a little bit of this, but we're going to be attacking Christianity. So I want you to notice that every Easter and every Christmas, Newsweek magazine comes up with something that is derogatory to the church. And did you see Newsweek magazine? The picture was a, a nice-looking guy with a, uh, with, with a crown on his head. And the title was, Forget the Church, Follow Jesus. Did you see that? Forget the church, follow Jesus. You know how wrong they were? Do you know that many Christians are doing that? Forget the church, follow Jesus. You see what he says there that what is he? He is the head of the body. What is that body? The church. The church. Jesus and his church go together. They are inseparable. He is the church's savior. We just sang this, mo- this morning. We sang that this morning. He is the church's redeemer, church's sustainer. So church is important to him. He died for the church. So we cannot follow Jesus and forget the church. Because this is his bride. This is his bride. And when we talk about church, we're not talking about just the local congregation. We're talking about the, the, the worldwide ecclesia. That's what we're talking about. So Jesus and the church go together. It is he's his husband, it is Lord, he protects, he keeps, he builds it, he grows it, and he graces it with gifts. How important is the church? God has made him the head of the church and he's become the risen king. He's the risen king. We sang about the risen king this morning. So that he might become preeminent in all things. This is God's purpose for his son. He has deliberately resolved that he will honor and glorify his son by making him king of the universe and also Lord of the church. Jesus. Our Jesus. Not only the king of the universe, but our Jesus and the Lord of the church. We can take great comfort and joy this morning to know that the shepherd of this church is Jesus. And he said in his word, in, in the gospel, he says, I am going to build my church that even the gates of hell shall not prevail against this. So no onslaught, no attack of the church will ever prevail. I come from a land where a man called Idi Amin decided that within one year he's going to demolish the whole entire church. Decided he's going to do it. And so he started killing pastors, as if killing pastors will end that. He closed up the churches, as if closing the churches would do that. But you know what happened? In his reign, the church even grew faster. And you know what's the fastest growing movement of people on the continent of Africa? It's the marching victorious church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Almost 40% on the continent believers a few years ago Gaddafi came to he came on Easter he came on Easter in Kampala Uganda he planned everything so well he built this second largest mosque in Africa he built it in Uganda and he was actually continuing with Idi Amin's idea and on Easter day guess what he did he came in on a white horse. He brought a white limousine and he flew into Africa. Gaddafi did. And he said, now with this big mosque, we're going to take over Africa. And Africa is all going to be Islam. 
And it's golden. Once you, when you come to Kampala, you'll see it's the most brightest of all buildings. But guess what? Gaddafi is gone. And the church in Africa, church in Uganda is still moving on. Idi Amin is gone. But the church is moving on. You remember many years ago in China, the church was being suppressed. But guess what? There's all underground churches moving on. Why? Because our victorious risen Christ, he holds this church and he's over this church and he governs this church. I want what Calvin says, great insight. It's Calvin he says of this, of this text here. He says, he shows therefore that it's he to whom alone believers ought to have an eye and on whom alone the unity of the body depends. So brothers and sisters, let's not just do church. Let's look at Jesus. You move Jesus out of the church like many churches have done. Oh, you grow. You don't have any room. But you will not have any church. Let's not go to the church. Real quick, he continues. He says, the church is the body of Christ. The word church comes from Ecclesia. I know you know that. The meaning of the congregation of the assembly made up of people who have been called out. And so he says that this church belongs to him. So in the context of Colossians 1.18, Paul is speaking of the church universal, though that we are about to say uh, it is a church universal. I, I want you to see something of great significance this morning. That here I am today as an African from the country of Uganda, Kampala. Your descendant, your ancestors brought missionaries to our nations to preach the gospel. And here I am, full circle, standing before you, talking about the same Jesus. Believing the same Jesus from Africa. So your church is universal. Church is everywhere. Don't, don't, don't listen to the news. The church is growing. <laughs> and your church is triumphant. And the church is victorious. Why? Because Christ is preeminent even over the church. He takes first place and he rules this. So he's the head of the church. He's over the church. He's over the church and rules this. So he's, the, he's, he's one, therefore, who controls the destiny of those who are in the church. The beginning, the firstborn from the dead, verse 18 says, the, firstborn, the word beginning comes from the Greek word archae. Various shades of meaning include beginning or origin. Origin. The person or things that commence, the first, the first person or the, the thing in series or leader. So the first place in principle, rule or majesty. Remember the use of the word firstborn. It does not necessarily mean the first one, but can refer to the preeminent one. Our Christ is the preeminent one. But I want you to see real quick that Paul doesn't end there. He says also not only Christ is preeminent in the church, but also Christ is preeminent in reconciliation. Look, look at verse 19 with me. Remain in creation, in reconciliation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So we have seen here that is the image of the invisible God. Paul later declares that Jesus dwells all, dwells all the, dwell in Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in Colossians 2.9. Jesus is also our fullness. In him we have redemption through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our sins. In him we have all the treasures of wisdom. Colossians 2.3 says to us, yes, we are complete in him, Colossians 2.10. 
So finally, Jesus, we learn that Jesus is the reconciler of all things. The Father desires to reconcile all things to himself. All things on earth, which include sinful men, you and I, both Jews and Gentiles, as Ephesians says, things in heaven. Admittedly, these are really difficult phrases, but it could be easy to fall into vain speculation as to what it means. But let me tell you things. The Bible says all things. All things. God is able to reconcile all things by Jesus to himself. Having made peace with the blood of the cross, through the death of his son, it's now possible for sinful man to be reconciled to God. God is not only a reconciler, a creator, redeemer, but he's also a redeemer. He reconciled everything. Christ reconciles everything. He's preeminent in reconciliation. There will be no way, no way, there will be no way anybody will ever be in heaven without Jesus Christ. There will be no gospel. The gospel is not good news without Jesus, the principal reconciler. The gospel is empty. Anybody who talks about the gospel with cry without Christ, like it's happening in the West, it's empty. It's bankrupt. The gospel within itself is Jesus. And, and, and you want to try that. If you go to the book of Acts and just find out what the apostles preached, everywhere you open where the apostles preached, you do that examination when you go back home, everywhere they preached, you will see over and over again that there was never a presentation of the good news to God without Jesus. Because Jesus is preeminent in reconciliation. He reconciles us to God. He is the way to God. You see, brothers and sisters, this is what happened. We, we, we were dead in Adam. We all we were sinful. We were dead. We, we are totally depraved in Adam. The imputation of Adam's sins was over us. We are all doomed to destruction. But the great redeemer, the great reconciler came and, 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 and our sins, the sins of the world, the sins of the redeemed were imputed on Christ. And what killed Jesus Christ is not anything else but my sins and your sins created, killed Jesus on that cross. But the story doesn't end there because he, his, our sins were imputed on him. But guess what? His righteousness was imputed on us. So we have the righteousness of God. We have a right standing with God because Jesus Christ is preeminent in reconciliation. He has reconciled us to the Father. That's great news. Great news. And Jesus Christ is able to reconcile not only us to the Father, but Jesus Christ is able to reconcile us to each other. Because in Colossians, you'll see over and over again how Paul takes this great message, this great truth, and he applies it to every facet of life. Jesus reconciles people in marriages. Jesus reconciles people of different races. Jesus reconciles Gentiles and, and Jews. Jesus reconciles people that are from different regions of the world and reconciles them. That's what he do. He's preeminent in reconciliation. As I end this morning, when I was in seminary, I was introduced to 
what they used to call the stone lectures. When Princeton was still orthodox, they used to have what they called the stone lectures, and, and they used to invite prominent preachers all over the world to come and preach at Princeton stone lectures. And one of the visiting lecturers was the prime minister who later became the prime minister of England. His name was Abraham Kuyper. And he had the inaugural address there, which also really he used that the same thing when he was founding the Free University of Amsterdam. And there was a phrase that caught my attention. And this is what he says, in light of all of this, the preeminence of Christ in all of life, in light of all this, Abraham says this, Abraham Kuyper says this, that there's not, there's not a square inch in the all domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, that Christ doesn't cry, it is mine. I want to repeat that. There is no square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, doesn't say it is mine. Everything belongs to our Christ. Everything. In the book of uh, 2 Corinthians, really one application here. One application here. In, in, in Corinthians, Paul, in Corinthians 4, 5, sorry, Colossians, 2 Corinthians 5, I want you, especially young people, I want you to look at this. Especially you young people. 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. In verse 13, it says, For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore for all have died. Verse 15. And he has died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So if everything was for Christ, then your vocation, your education, your marriage, your wealth, your nation, Everything else you think about is for our Christ. And whatever we do is for him. Because remember that we are not just his creation. He doesn't own us. He owns us doubly. He owns us in creation but also owns us by redemption. The preeminence of Christ on all of life. So with us as believers, there's no, there's no, there's no secular and sacred there's no private and public everything is owned by christ so young people i want you to remember this everything everything you know when you go to geometry mathematics science biology algebra logic everything everything points to this one who is altogether lovely our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to end by, look, listen to what someone said. He said about Jesus. Someone has said that he came from the bosom of the father to the bosom of the woman. 
He put on humanity that we might put on divinity. He became the son of man that we might become sons of God. He was born contrary to the laws of nature, lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity, and only once crossed the boundary of the land in which he was born. And that in his childhood, he had no wealth or influence. He had neither training nor education in the world's schools. His relatives were inconspicuous, inconspicuous and uninfluential. In infancy, he started a king. In boyhood, he puzzled the land doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows and hushed the seas asleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, yet all the libraries of the, con the, libraries of the country could not hold all the books about him. He never wrote a song, yet he furnished the steam for more songs than all the songwriters together. He never founded a university, yet all the schools of the world cannot boast as many students as he has. He never practiced medicine, yet he healed more broken hearts than the doctors have healed broken bodies. This Jesus Christ is a star of astronomy, the rock of geology, the lion and the lamb of zoology, the harmonizer of all discords, and the healer of all diseases. Throughout history, men have come and gone, yet he still lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. The grave could not hold him. This is our Christ, the preeminent one. Jesus is nothing less but the preeminent one in all things. So this morning, if you're in Christ, you enter into all that he is, and you have all the fullness of he is. There's nothing more. It's not Jesus plus anything I want to remind you where I began from. What is attack in the West is not just your liberties. What is attack in the West is Jesus. And so we must lift his banner high without any shame. We must talk about him when we're in school, when he's comfortable, when he's uncomfortable. We must bring up his conversation everywhere because we know our Lord reigns. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, I will pray this morning that these words from Colossians will be such an encouragement to all of us here today that Lord, we will leave this place our heads high because we serve the one who is preeminent over all. And Father, we want to lay everything before him because all things were created by him and for him. Nothing is of ours. So we release everything that we think is ours because it's not. And Father, we release it to his disposal that he might do his work of reconciling men to himself. Help us now, we pray. Give us the boldness we need. In Jesus' name, amen.